Hello, my friends. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some details, but I'm actually going to go big picture today and talk about what the last year and a half has done to us psychologically. I found a very interesting article online about the technical and medical definitions of psychological torture and how what we've been going through has a form of that. The isolation, the, ga the gaslighting, the, the threats and the blame. I think there's some truth to that. And have we rewired our own minds and we think of ourselves now as prisoners or subjects as opposed to citizens? So I'll talk about that. Let me invite you to become a subscriber to what we call Rebel News Plus. It's the video version of this podcast, eight bucks a month. Go to rebelnews.com and click subscribe. It's half the price of Netflix, but I think we have interesting things we talk about you won't find elsewhere. In addition to my show, you get shows from Sheila Gunn-Reed, David Menzies, and Andrew Chapados. Eight bucks a month. Help us out. We don't take a dime from Trudeau. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, what have they done to you? It's August 6th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I get bogged down into details sometimes. That's where the devil is, they say, and it's true. The details are important. Important details I've been looking at lately include the fact that in Ontario, for example, there are just over 3 million minors, people under age 20. And since the pandemic began, there have been a grand total of four minors who have died from the virus. So that it's about one in a million. That's a useful detail to know. It reminds us that our first reaction to the pandemic back in March of 2020 was wrong. It's not something that affects all of us equally. It practically spares the young, at least in terms of serious health effects. Another detail we've learned helps explain the anomaly we all saw dating back to March 2020. Why does Quebec, with just a quarter of Canada's population, have half of the deaths? Is it particularly unhealthy over there? Uh, well, you could start to guess when last year we saw headlines like this. This was in the Toronto Star. May of 2020, just, just two months into things, really, when some of the least curious reporters, I mean, you expect all of them to be curious, but there were a couple who were interested. They started to notice that it wasn't young people who were at risk, and it wasn't even just seniors in general who were at risk. It was that small sliver of seniors in long-term care homes. 82% of deaths there when only about 1% of Canadians live in such facilities. But it, it wasn't actually, uh, again, Quebec. It, it, was, it was in Quebec mainly, not Ontario, pardon me. So why? Well, here's what I wrote almost exactly a year ago. In Canada, COVID-19 is not a health problem, it's a euthanasia problem. Quebec is Canada's most aggressive pro-euthanasia laws. Quebec has 24% of the population, but 63% of the deaths not sure if that's accurate today, but that's how it was back then. Almost all of them very old people in institutions with do not revive orders. You don't have to be terminally ill to access state-assisted suicide in Quebec. It's like Planned Parenthood took over the seniors' homes. I'll read just one more. 
Quebec has a culture of death. They have the highest abortion rate in Canada, though they no longer publish the data. Abortion is common birth control even for college students. I go on a bit, but it's pretty clear to me there's nothing in the air or water in Quebec. Their hospitals aren't remarkably better or worse than the rest of Canada. They just have laws that let people pull the plug so easily. And that was confirmed in recent weeks by nurses and doctors confessing when people in those places got sick, they didn't try and make them better. They just put them on morphine to numb the pain and started to basically turn off the switch. Why? Because they were very sick anyways and very old and on the brink of death because they didn't know what else to do with them because they were pressured or scared or politicians with an eye to budgets or, I don't know, their own kids ready for grandma and grandpa to kick the bucket already. I don't know. But for whatever reason, that's what happened. Sorry, I don't blame a virus for that. That's politics. That's a culture of death. It seems so obvious to me now. Here's what the Toronto Star article back in May 2020 said. New data reveals the overwhelming toll on elderly Canadians in long-term care during the COVID-19 outbreak, showing they make up 82% of all deaths. The National Institute on Aging says that of May 6th, 3,436 residents and six staff members of long-term care settings had died of COVID-19, representing 82% of the 4,000 deaths reported as of Wednesday. Dr. Samir Sinha, research director of the Institute, says it is a staggering figure. Given the roughly 400,000 residents living in care homes represent just 1% of Canada's population. Yes, some of them died from the virus or naturally, but the Globe story says many of them were effectively euthanized. It's a version of what Hanzi Andy Cuomo did in New York. He basically wanted to get rid of these people. So I think the details help us see things. I noticed changes in phrasing how the powers that be talk about the pandemic these days. Two weeks to flatten the curve. Remember all that? That meant we can't all get sick at once because that would swamp the hospitals. The curve would go like that. Flatten the curve means like that. Doesn't mean we won't get sick. It just means it happens at a slower rate. We all will get sick, but not at the same time. So the hospitals can treat us. It doesn't mean zero COVID. It means managing COVID. Well, the good news is no hospitals in Canada or from what I know, the US or UK or Australia were ever swamped. It just never happened. We know that anecdotally from all those cute TikTok videos that bored nurses and doctors did. See, they kicked out everyone else from the hospital waiting for the wave that never came. So they passed the time by making these videos, some of them incredibly elaborate, some of them using drones. Some of them had over 100 people participating in these TikTok videos. They told us that, um, that they were swamped, but we could see from these videos that they weren't swamped. So did statistics in Ontario, intensive care units and hospitals actually had more vacancy during the pandemic than before because so many people just didn't go to the hospital. So they don't say 14 days to flatten the curve anymore because the hospitals are nowhere near full and they never really were. I showed you that in half of Canada's provinces and territories, there hasn't been a death in a week in a country of 38 million people. So the establishment is shifting from measuring hospitals to measuring cases, but those are falling too. So now they're measuring, if you take an experimental medicine, medicine called a vaccine, I call it experimental because it hasn't finished its clinical trials yet, none of the vaccines have. 
None of them have been approved by the FDA yet. It's only being authorized for emergency use. So that's the measure they talk about now, percentage of people who are vaxxed, because if you were to measure the number of sick people or dying people or people in the hospital, you'd know the pandemic is statistically over. The curve isn't just flat, it's gone. And yet the lockdowns are moving into high gear in a way with vaccine passports. They're becoming permanent. Vaccine passports are really a way of digitizing your entire life, connecting your every private detail to your political rights, your economic rights, your health information, even the most private things, linking it now to your legal ability to shop, go to a restaurant, to live, to rent an apartment, to go to school, to travel, everything. It's really not about COVID-19 anymore, is it? Enough talk about details. Let me show you two more generic thoughts. Let's pull the camera out a bit. The first is a clip from Neil Oliver, a commentator in the United Kingdom with GB News. He comes out with a new video every weekend. It's the best thing on TV. Let me play for you just one minute of it. He talks about, you know, parents' idle dream of ne never letting your kids go because you love them too much and you're afraid of the world, and how that dream is actually come true in the lockdown, and it's shown itself to be actually a bit of a nightmare. Freedom is not negotiable. You're either free or you're not. Freedom is not even safe. Those who've been imprisoned are often terrified of freedom, all those choices, all of that personal responsibility. This is why ex-cons often reoffend, so they can go back behind bars where it feels safer, out of harm's way. I have three children. They're growing up fast, teenagers all. Often I think I would like to keep them close by me forever, where I can stop them doing stupid things, dangerous things. If I kept them in the house, no stranger could hurt them. But that would be no life, not for them and not even for me. I would be their jailer and they would be my caged birds. As it happens, this past year and a half has let me see what happens to children kept safe in the house. It's not good. It's not good at all. And so if I didn't know it before, I know now that I have to let them go out into a world that is full of all manner of things, danger included. Isn't that a great point? But it's not just children who are locked down, it's all of us. And I read this essay in American Greatness, and I, I just want to read a lot of it to you now. It's by Peter Dabrowska. He wrote it. You can find it online. I'm just going to read a chunk of it to you, not out of laziness, but out of recognition that he really phrased it in a way that I don't think I can meaningfully improve upon. Call the COVID hysteria what it is. There's a reason why you might be noticing the tactics and effects of psychological torture in your everyday life. I'm going to read this to you. Do you know what one of the most common psychological torture tactics is? Isolation. Other common tactics of psychological torture, according to the Center for the Study of Human Rights in the Americas at the University of California, Davis, include indefinite detention and a sense of futility. Threats of death are also a common tactic psychological torturers use. So is degradation and sensory deprivation. Torture is defined as the deliberate systematic or wanton infliction of physical or mental suffering by one or more persons acting alone or on the orders of any authority to force another person to yield information, to make a confession, or for any other reason. Medical professionals make no definitional distinction between psychological and physical torture. Do any of the above tactics of psychological torture sound familiar? They should. 
Your government leaders at the direction of Dr. Anthony Fauci and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control have been inflicting them upon you for almost 18 months. Obviously, it's the same thing in Canada. Lockdowns are the obvious example of isolation, but subtler's the suggestion, which is once again becoming a major talking point among our public health and elected officials, that if you do dare to leave your house, standing close to another human being or gathering in groups could be dangerous, even deadly. I think that's so true, don't you? I think this is a giant game of psychological manipulation. I think that if you didn't watch the media and if you didn't listen to experts, you probably wouldn't even know there was a pandemic going on. In fact, if you didn't know someone in a euthanasia risky long-term care home, if your life wasn't spent with people in their 80s and 90s, you probably wouldn't have even known about the pandemic at all other than the fact that it was on TV and there were government lockdowns. I'm going to read some more. Are you feeling a sense of futility yet? If you've refused the vaccine, you might be. How many times can you explain to the brainwashed masses that you have good reason to avoid taking an experimental drug? How long will the hysteria last? How can these mindless leftists possibly continue blindly to follow the immoral authority of the CDC and somehow have the audacity to label themselves intellectuals? Will we ever return to pre-COVID norms where a virus didn't dominate our daily lives? You might also feel a sense of futility if your employer, at the behest of your government torturers, is coercing you into taking the vaccine under threat of unemployment. The threat of losing your livelihood in itself is in itself part of the torture. They're hoping that the idea of financial ruin will break you and that you'll finally give in to their demands. On the topic of degradation, what could possibly be more degrading than becoming a guinea pig for an experimental drug? Bear in mind that such drugs are normally tested on lab rats. Now they're being tested on you. Masks are an obvious form of degradation too, being forced to wear a dirty cloth diaper over your face for months on end sounds like a fraternity hazing ritual, only it wasn't. It was the official policy mandated by nearly every U.S. governor at the behest of the CDC. Now it's the official recommendation. I've read a lot from this essay. I just didn't think of it that way, or maybe I did, but he put it into words. On the topic of masks, I've called masks the flag of lockdownism, the ideology, the philosophy, wearing that flag, that mask, it's a sign that not only have you surrendered to the powers that be, and not only that you submit, but that you will fly their flag. You will help keep people in a state of agitation and fear. And in so doing, you will help enforce it, even if you don't really mean to. You'll just keep reminding everyone else we're in a crisis, that your mask at the very least is a moral condemnation of those who don't wear one. And it'll actually help in the peer pressure to crush anyone and marginalize anyone who doesn't wear one. Okay, I'm going to read you just one last excerpt. And what about threats of death? Have you heard more than a few people over the past 18 months tell you that if you don't follow the infallible word of Fauci that you'll die? Or worse, that you'll cause the death of someone you love? Of course you have. That messaging is ubiquitous. I think he's talking about the worst part of this lockdown. I've mentioned it before, how we treat each other, how we look at each other, how shopkeepers treat customers, how we treat each other on the street now. The mask isn't just bad for the obvious reasons. It gives us a sense of anonymity so we can behave more poorly in person than we normally do. Normally, the worst behavior comes out online when people are anonymous because you don't have to face someone down. But imagine being face-to-face in a store and shrieking at someone, put on your mask. If you're wearing a mask, you're half-hidden. And maybe that gives you a boldness because you're removed from the immediate social consequences of your misconduct. Remember, the lockdown itself 
is a medical experiment. The lockdown was prescribed by public health doctors, but never before have the healthy been locked down, never in history. It was a word reserved for prison riots, the prisons in a lockdown. Never before were innocent people treated as criminals, house arrest. Never before were families told they couldn't meet, or console each other at a funeral, couldn't meet even if grandpa was dying. This is all new, this is all experimental, and it's also obviously directed by the World Health Organization. We know that because we're told that because they say that, both by obedient repeaters like Teresa Tam, who actually worked for the World Health Organization for the first half of the pandemic, and also by vicious censors like Facebook and YouTube, who explicitly say in their terms of service that if you dispute the World Health Organization, you will be suspended. They say that. They've deleted elected officials from Derek Sloan in Canada to the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. But of course they did. They deleted the sitting president of the United States, Donald Trump. So it's the details, sure. But pull the camera back, get a wider view. It's the entire socialization of the entire population to think of themselves as prisoners, or at least as subjects, not citizens. Permanent, perpetual obedience, obey politicians and, until now, anonymous health bureaucrats that no one ever heard of. Few, if any, of these lockdown rules have been debated, let alone voted on. Vaccine passports aren't being voted on, but they're here now. Our entire society has been rewired. Everything has been changed. And it started and continues with rewiring you and how you think and how you feel even about yourself. We've all been brainwashed in a way, haven't we? And if you say, no, no, you haven't. Well, look at your life. And if you think that, maybe you're so far gone, you're numb to it. Maybe you don't even notice it anymore. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, the lockdownism, the virtual house arrest, the bans on foreign travel and jet travel. In fact, in some places, banning people from traveling even outside their homes or beyond a few kilometers. Well, that is what the climate apocalyptics always wanted. They wanted us to be under a form of house arrest. They wanted the deindustrialization of the world. The climate folks never got it. But boy, the coronavirus uh, folks got it. In many cases, it's the same people. Greta Thunberg suddenly couldn't jaunt around for her climate strikes. Uh, so her, her climate strikes, so she tried to reinvent herself. It's a bit of a coronavirus activist. People weren't buying. But um, the climate movement is trying to catch up. Let me read from an article in The Guardian. <laughs> Three Americans create enough carbon emissions to kill one person. Study finds. And they go on saying that climate change should be a cause of death and we should have climate lockdowns or at least climate rollbacks. Joining us now to talk about this is our friend Mark Moreno from ClimateDepot.com. Mark, they're really trying to piggyback on the, on the coronavirus lockdowns. They're trying to blur the two, aren't they? They are. I mean, how, many, how long can climate activists from Greta Thunberg to UN officials to John Kerry to Jane Fonda, the professors in academia, sit by? and watch their coveted solutions. They were for 
economic uh, you know, lockdowns long before COVID came along. I've interviewed Kevin Anderson from the Tyndale Center a decade ago at these UN conferences, begging for planned recessions to fight global warming, begging for the degrowth movement to catch on. And lo and behold, it all happens. But COVID gets the credit. So they've had it. So the climate activists are out there now. This is published in the journal Nature Communications. So it's peer reviewed, Ezra. You can't challenge it. You don't have the science credentials to challenge this study. Hmm. Basically, Americans are killing three to four people. If you eat a hamburger this afternoon, you just killed a Kenyan. If you drive an SUV to the supermarket, you just killed a Bangladeshi. That's how bad it's become. They want to make it so that there's a daily awareness of Americans that everything we do that involves energy with fossil fuel, we're murdering people. We're no better than the unvaxxed, unmasked person who's murdering grandma hmm. by, not, by not following COVID protocols. We need to follow the climate protocols, which tells us, one of your own Canadian uh, academics said, ban the, America, ban the pickup truck, ban uh, private ownership of car, ban the internal combustion engine, ban short haul flights, make flying only justifiable when it's, you know, when you can go to a government official and it's morally justified, you have to come up with your reason. This is it, Ezra, they've figured it out and they're going forward and I see nothing stopping. I'm certainly not here in the US, head of the Republican party, this climate's a problem, we need a solution, but just not one as bad as, not one as encompassing as the Green New Deal. Huh. You know, uh, Dr. Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, who's a skeptic about many of these things, he sees one of the commonalities between climate change as an apocalypse and coronavirus as an apocalypse is that both are invisible menaces and you have to trust officials. And there's a lot of jiggery pokery involved. And I think he's exactly right. Both are just terrifying. You've got to believe us. I think for the longest time, people didn't really believe the global warming stuff. I mean, uh, they said they did in polls, but they weren't willing to live like it. I think this coronavirus apocalypse is the first time people have actually said, oh, I actually will wear a mask. I actually will not leave my house. I actually am scared, so scared I'm going to turn on my neighbor in a way we've never seen before. They managed to make the invisible coronavirus more terrifying than the invisible global warming uh, GHGs. They, they did it. They managed to do it. They did it and they did it brilliantly and they did it with one factor, maximum fear. And why coronavirus succeeded where 50 decades of environmental scares failed, beginning with overpopulation and then global cooling and resource scarcity and famines and peak oil and the deforestation, Amazon, just all that failed. Climate change failed to scare. A virus scares you. They raised the specter of the 1917, 1918 Spanish flu and the Middle Ages plague, the bubonic plague. And they told people that unless we did this, we were all going to be doomed. And they were able because what cuts across partisan lines, ideological lines, personal health issues. You may be a conservative libertarian against the Green New Deal, but somehow if you believe that your health is threatened or your children's health or your parents' health, suddenly that's how they did it. And they realize that. The climate activists know that. So they're trying to ape the same things. Calls to add it to death certificates. Now, every time an American uses energy, we're murdering people around the world uh, because of our greed and selfishness. But what's most interesting is all these studies and the Washington Post is detailed and they're showing up in peer-reviewed journals, Hollywood actors. If we don't take care 
of climate change, we're going to get a lot more worse viruses than COVID-19. Bill Gates has said climate change will cause more deaths than any virus. But if we don't take care of viruses, we'll get more. So they're trying to morph the two together. And this latest study in the journal Nature is another example of that. And again, they are having nothing but wild success. Why shouldn't they? We have New York City vaccine mandates, California considering it. Where I live in Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C., every school district is masking up kids because of the new variant out there. They're never letting this go until we resist. And I don't see it resisting. I have never been more pessimistic in the cause of liberty and fighting unscientific nonsense in my entire life, Ezra. I'm not ready to throw the towel in yet, but I'm just telling you, I don't see it. I don't see victory. I see years, decades of loss. I feel like we're Poland in 1946, and we have to wait another four decades to even get a chance for the Soviet Union to collapse. This is not going away anytime soon. Wow, very depressing. I think you're right. I mean, holy cow, did they ever manage to shift from two weeks to flatten the curve, which was not to say eradicate the virus or COVID zero. It was, let's just not all get sick at once to you now have to be triple vaxxed, annual booster shot, you need vax passports, masking, you know, no matter what case counts are, like that it's not even about the problem anymore. It's about our solutions that we have cooked up for you. Now, let me ask you, because you're in America, you know these things uh, closer than we do up here in Canada. The one thing I'm holding out hope for is the two major states of Texas and Florida. I mean, uh, California is the largest state, and luckily that governor is somewhat on the back foot because of the recall petition. And I think his lockdownism is a reason for that. New York, their governor, Hansy Andy, is, uh, you know, also reeling from his own sex scandals. So other than California and New York, two of the most populous states and politically and economically important states are Texas and Florida. And both of them, especially Florida's Ron DeSantis, seems to be pushing back in very meaningful and clear ways, not just as a speaker, but using the law. And I want to tell you, and Mark, I hope you agree with me, that I'm putting a lot of hope in those two states, that they can hold the fort until the 2022 elections and the 2024 elections. Am I engaging in wishful thinking? No. Okay. First of all, Governor DeSantis, you are absolutely right to praise him. In fact, there have been reports and journalistic analysis and COVID analysis. Without Governor DeSantis, he, he quite literally saved America from COVID tyranny, because at least he made it, uh, he was able to save half of America. Because so, including Texas, including Georgia, including South Carolina, these are Republican states run by governors, Arkansas, they were all locking down, too terrified to challenge the expertise of the public health on COVID. Ron DeSantis and Ron DeSantis alone, I'm, I'm going to even, not, I'm not even including Christy Noman this. I've done some investigative work there researching it. And the legislatures in South Dakota were never going to let them lock down. And actually, early on, uh, you know, she was not as strong as she makes herself out to be right now. Um, but the, there's only one clear leader among governors. And it's not just like, oh, he edges them out. He stands alone. It's Ron DeSantis. Not only did he act Trumpian in his attitude and take on the media and the academia and the public health, but he did it in a way that I wish Trump would have done more as president. He did it with intellectual firepower and science 
actual science meetings. Remember, I was the one who urged, begged, pleaded, lobbied every Trump administration official to do this climate committee where you would put together two dozen world-renowned scientists, former UN scientists, all together to come up with the first ever report challenging the UN climate consensus. They didn't do it. Trump said yes, and the staff delayed it. Well, what Ron DeSantis did, took it, taking that model, he brought in a Nobel Prize-winning epidemiologist, award-winning ones, brought them to Florida, had press conferences, went right to the heart of the case counts, of the lockdowns, of mask mandates, and he just shut it all down in the media's face every day to the point where Bill Maher, the liberal HBO host, actually said, praised DeSantis, because Bill Maher is with us on all this anti-COVID stuff. He wants to end social distancing, mask mandates. He wants young people to spread the virus and get herd immunity. He praised, Bill Maher praised DeSantis as being really smart and reads a lot of scientific journals. So he is the model for all Republicans. Texas, I'm sorry, I'm not that impressed with the Texas governor. He had a mask mandate in effect statewide until like April of 2021. He is a follower, not a leader. He is coming around now. He's very strong, Governor Abbott, but I don't trust him. I only trust pretty much Christy Nome at this point and Governor DeSantis. Everyone else are leaders and they're still terrified. Yeah, and Christy Nome, I saw this tweet from her the other day saying that as far as Vax passports go, South Dakotans can go get another job. I, I was disappointed that she didn't step in and Oh, ban vax passports like Ron DeSantis did. I want to praise DeSantis a little more, and, and it's tough to put so much hope in one guy. It's a very dangerous <laughs> thing. But listen, better one guy than zero guys. You know, the White House has been sparring with DeSantis. They know that he's a likely challenger for 2024 presidential. Um, I want to show you a quick clip from Joe Biden when he pretends he's not concerned at all, doesn't even know the name Ron DeSantis. Look at this. <laughs> yeah, they're obsessed with DeSantis. Uh, Jen Psaki, the spokesman, talks about him every day. But I want to show you Ron DeSantis, and this is that Trumpian flourish that you're referring to. But but like you say, intellectual firepower. So yes. the day after Joe Biden said, DeSantis, who? Here's how DeSantis answered. Do you have a comment about the comment that President Biden made recently? <laughs> well, uh, I guess I'm not surprised that, that Biden doesn't remember me. Um, I guess the question is, is what else has he forgotten? <laughs> Biden's forgotten about the crisis at our southern border. I can tell you that. Uh, Biden has forgotten about the inflation that's biting the budgets of families all throughout our country. Uh, Biden has forgotten about the demonstrators who are fighting for freedoms down in Cuba. And Biden's even forgotten about the Constitution itself, as we saw with what he did with this moratorium. And I can just tell you, I'm the governor who protects parents and their ability to make the right choices for their kids' education. I'm the governor who protects the jobs and education and businesses in Florida by not letting the federal government lock us down. I'm the governor who answers to the people of Florida, I not to bureaucrats in Washington. First of all, that's very funny taking on uh, Joe Biden's forgetfulness. I think that's a jab. But what I like so much about Ron DeSantis is he's not saying it's me versus Biden. He's saying... 
Florida parents can make their own choice. And I'm going to and he said that Florida businesses can make their own choice. This is a personal choice and, and we're not we're not going to let them crush businesses. And I loved how he always managed to throw it back to the power of the people. And as opposed to perhaps a more egocentric politician who would say, no, I will stop you. No, he's saying, I'll defend these individual Floridians. I find it a very appealing message. I think it's got to be expanding DeSantis's base to other communities that don't traditionally vote Republican. I love how he's doing. And he's so, like you say, he's intellectually strong. He's my hope because how Florida goes, these other states go, and maybe they'll hold the fort till reinforcements come. Yes. Uh, one of the things I liked was when I guess it was either Biden or the Biden administration said, Governor DeSantis is get out of the way if you're not going to help us. And one of the things he said, and you're right, what's so important here is how you control the narrative, because the people in the middle and the moderate Democrats who we need, if there's ever going to stop this, have to know immediately have to have it reframed because otherwise they're just like, oh, well, it's safety. We have to do it. But he said, I will stand in the way of your tyranny. I will stand in the way of your vaccine passport. I will stand in the way of your mandates. That's exactly what we do when they say get out of the way and let us do it. No, because even people like Dan Rather, the former CBS newsman, tweeted out. He pinned a tweet. He was so proud of this. He said, you know, if we're going to ban masks in school, we should also ban, you know, helmets for sports. And, and the thing is that people were saying, hey, uh, Dan, uh, no one's banning masks. They're just not mandating them. This is what the left doesn't understand. If you they don't understand that if unless government forces you to do something, they think then somehow it's tyranny or it's a form of fascism. It's completely bonkers, Ezra. Again, we have, but here's what I want to put in one comment here. We have DeSantis, we have Congressman Chip Roy, we have Rand Paul, we have Ted Cruz. There's a lot of good congressmen and senators who are now stepping up. And one of the things to watch is the House ban uh, on uh, the, the House mandates on masks for House members in the U.S. floor because many Republican congressmen are going to risk thousands in fines every day by not following it. And also, they're talking about a vaccine passport on the, in the Congress. So we need the Republicans to stand up. I personally am doing my part. I'm fighting it. On, you know, My kids go to a school that don't require a mask. I have an aunt who's in a nursing home. They told me I had to get a, either a vaccine, a show a vaccine, or I have to get a, a test every time I visit. And you know what I said? I'm not going to do it. I'm coming and y'all see you. I was prepared. I'm prepared to get arrested if I have to. They backed down and they gave me the uh, uh, they gave me a, a N95 mask to wear, which I said I would do that when I visit. But there's no way I'm going to get a COVID test every time I go visit. It's just madness at this point. I'm not it's we have to stand up individually. You have to fight this and you have to make it uncomfortable for people. I'm telling everyone, public school kids, parents, Organize, show up the first day on mask with kids not wearing masks, make it uncomfortable. It's too easy to pull your kid out and say, I'm leaving. Stay and cause nightmares for the bureaucrats there and the teachers and the principals. Hmm. You know, it's it's the conformity, and that's the one of the national identities of Canada, not universally, but Toronto's the worst for it. Ron DeSantis, we, we both are in his fan club in Canada. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney held the line very well for the first six months. Then he absolutely collapsed and became the most punitive. He's the one who threw four Christian pastors in prison for not yeah. closing their churches. I'm pleased to say, though, Mark, that on July 1st, all the lockdowns were lifted, the mask mandates, and now they don't even have, you know, quarantining or track and trace. They're treating it like it's the annual flu. 
So Alberta, other than some venge, ven, revenge lawsuits they're doing against a couple of these pastors and businessmen, they are now Florida free. And it'll be interesting to see if Alberta can withstand pressure from the rest of the country, because just like Ron DeSantis is a good role model for Texas and those other southern states, Alberta could not only be a role model for other provinces, but could attract COVID refugees. And by that, I mean people who are sick of masks and sick of lockdowns yeah. and sick of that. If they're mobile, they'll move to Alberta. And I'm not just talking about elites who find it easy to move, like, like wealthy business people, even regular folks. Like if you're a waiter, but restaurants are locked down in Toronto, why not go to Calgary or Edmonton and work in a restaurant? That's not an elite person, but that's just someone who wants to work. If Alberta can hold the line, it can be, again, the Florida of Canada. I just hope Jason Kenney doesn't have a relapse like he did before. Last word to you. Yeah, I, uh, ground zero is what you're saying, uh, Ezra. Where are people going to move? How are they going to stay and fight? The place to watch besides Florida is New York City right now. Their mayor is literally a fascist nut, at Governor de Bla Mayor de Blasio. Watch New York City. I can't imagine the large black community and the, uh, the mom and pop businesses that are left, not many, are going to allow a vaccine passport to be imposed upon them. So let's see how that goes. I almost want to travel to New York just to defy the vaccine passport. I have not gotten vaccinated, have no plans to get it. I'll say publicly I would rather risk getting COVID than that vaccine. So there you go, giving out personal health information on the air. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I followed when de Blasio announced that vaccine passport and what he's like. And my first question was, who's going to enforce it? I mean, the New York City Police Department, which is one of the finest police departments in the world, um, they're already stretched thin. They've had a, a terrible year in terms of real crime uh, egged on by the Democrats, including the mayor. And the, the thought that they would be enforcing this is laughable. I just don't really think the NYPD would do that. So what are you going to do? You're going to hire a new core yeah. of enforcers? Or are you going to actually expect all the little mom and pop? Like New York is famous for a little shop on every corner, mom and pop style, often an immigrant family, all, you know, mom, dad, and all the kids working there. The idea that these folks would become health fascists and drive away customers to please the mayor is very hard for me to believe. I hope that, that de Blasio finds resistance in them. We'll see in the months ahead. Great to see you again, Mark. Have a great Thank weekend. You. Thanks for being here. Thank you. All right, there you have it, Mike Morano. He's the boss of ClimateDepot.com. Boy, we covered a lot of ground there. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back on my show last night, last night. Rudy writes, I understand the disappointment from people after seeing the Mirage 2. It was the hope we all crave for. Thanks for your straight talk, Ezra. Yeah, I think I've spent too much time on this issue, but it's just, it's been the number one thing people have referred to me. And when I say, well, it, it actually isn't the reason the lockdown was lifted and actually all his legal um, gambits failed, people are angry. And I'm thinking, why are they angry? They don't know this guy. They've never heard of Stu Peters. They've never heard of Patrick King. Why are people mad at me? And I think it's because they are so bloody desperate for hope. Janet writes, thanks for clarifying what material evidence means in this context. Patrick King was on trial for a $1,200 lockdown fine for violating the anti-gathering rule. That's what was going to be heard in that court in Red Deer. It was not going to be about the virus itself. 
It wasn't because Patrick King didn't give notice to anybody that that was going to be his charter challenge defense. He just showed up in court completely unprepared. So um, when he subpoenaed Dina Hinshaw, it was for information about his own trial. He never gave notice that he was going to talk about any other issue. So material evidence meant his arrest and his ticket in Red Deer. Albert writes, why were the restrictions lifted then in Alberta? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. Their official reasons are that case counts, hospitalizations are way down and immunization is way up. And they sort of laid out their milestones and they met them. I'm not sure the immunization rate in Alberta, but it's quite high. And the hospitalization rate, last I checked, is very low. Fewer than one person per hospital. And the ICU rate, last I checked, is around 20 people in the entire province. That's what they said. I think it's more than that. I think they were under enormous political pressure. Uh, you might recall that Jason Kenney had a mutiny in his caucus. More than a dozen MLAs said they were opposed to lockdownism, including members of his own inner circle. So I think he wanted to get out of that lockdownism, which he had avoided for so long. So my answer to you is they claim they lifted the lockdown because their stats are better. I believe it was enormous political pressure on them. But whatever it is, it happened on July 1st. And Patrick King was not in court uh, for his great victory lap until three weeks later. It just didn't happen. And I get it. I get it. Boy, wouldn't it be great if there was some miracle solution, a silver bullet, a button we can press to fix everything? Alas, that just simply isn't the way it is. That's our show for today. Until next week, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom. Thank you.